Mountain gorillas are one of the world's most endangered species. Today they survive only in the forests of Central Africa, where they have endured years of civil war, habitat loss and poaching. We used to see the gorillas. There were very few, but those few, people never feared killing them. They were vermins, like other vermins. They were killed, they were poached. That was no problem. For decades, conservationists have tried to protect the gorillas and their habitat. Mountain gorillas are one of our closest living relatives. We share 98.4% genetic material. And when you go out to see them, it's very therapeutic. They look into the eye and you feel like you're connecting with a close relative. But the number of gorillas has continued to fall. There's only 700 mountain gorillas left in the world. But the future for these gorillas is looking brighter. A new conservation approach is heralded as the answer to their long-term survival. It's called ecotourism. The huge revenue generated from foreign tourists visiting the gorillas pays for the protection of the forest and development for the local people. Everybody is now putting on pressure on conservation because we are, we are benefiting from wildlife. Everybody is benefiting from tourism. But is gorilla tourism really the solution? Can it provide the best future for the gorillas, the forest and for local people? Or could it lead to an environmental and social disaster? These gorillas could end up dying as a result of too much human contact and then they'll lose the resource forever. Windy, impenetrable National Park in Uganda is home to half the world's remaining mountain gorillas. It's been designated a World Heritage Site. This forest is important both internationally, nationally and, and locally. Besides mountain gorillas, this is a very high biodiversity forest. We have a lot of other primates, we have forest elephants, we have a number of birds, a variety of them. We have a number of butterflies, so many trees, a wonderful forest. Just look out and see how beautiful it is. It's scenic beauty, wonderful. But the forest is under threat from people eager to use the land. The area surrounding Bwindi has been consumed by agriculture. Population pressure is increasing, and the population in the southwestern Uganda is the highest in Uganda, and it is also said it is highest in Africa. The park is an island of forest under threat from the ever-rising tide of people. In 1991, the Uganda Wildlife Authority was charged with protecting Bwindi. Local people's access to the park was stopped. This was enforced by armed rangers and was called fortress conservation. Originally, the communities were allowed to access a number of resources. They would access firewood, they would get mushrooms, they would get wild meat, they would get bamboo shoots, 
bamboo and many handicraft products. And when it was made national park, then these rights were removed. The removal of any of the forest products was stopped. And therefore, the communities came out in range. Communities used to set fire intentionally to the protected area. Then communities used to fight with the law enforcement. So the communities were really, really very hostile. As conservation by force wasn't working, a new approach was needed. This conflict had to be resolved. For gorillas to have a sustainable future, local people needed to be involved in their conservation rather than excluded from the forest. A question had come, say, oh, conserving for who? And therefore, we had to make a shift from that fortress approach to an integrated conservation development approach and put the people into conservation. The integrated conservation and development approach works by linking wildlife conservation with the improved welfare of the people around the park. Moses Mapeza is the chief executive of the Uganda Wildlife Authority. It's his job to decide how Bwindi is managed. We had to review and rethink the strategy to look into how to make these conservation areas more relevant to the people who live close to them or who even have ancestral claims to these lands. And that is how the whole notion of integrated programs started. Communities were helped to develop new livelihoods to replace those lost from their restricted access to the park. One was beekeeping, which replaced the need to burn wild hives in order to collect honey. We have taught them how to harvest good honey without setting fire to the forests. Originally they would use a lot of fire to chase away the bees, but now with protective gears they harvest without being stung by bees and the, the honey is clean and has higher value. And this one has become income generating activity because many people want this honey which is organic and people come as far as from Kampala to buy this honey. Now conservation was actually benefiting the local communities and their view of the forest began to change. In the beginning, everything like wildlife to me it was like useless because there was nothing I was benefiting from them. Even the many local people were just you know, taking anything as if it was nothing and then they could chop the trees down, they could kill the animals anyhow, but now things have changed. Everybody is now putting on pressure on conservation because we are, we are benefiting from wildlife. The most significant new approach adopted in Bwindi was the introduction of ecotourism. And the organization was starting up a guerrilla tourism program, trying to uh, find ways that the forest could generate income sustainably without being harvested, without being cut down, without killing animals, so that that provided income both to pay for the management of the park itself, to pay for all the salaries of the rangers and the guides and the park staff and, and the maintenance of the forest, but also to generate income for the local communities. In 1993, the first guerrilla tourists came to Bwindi. Today, 
12,000 ecotourists visit every year. My partner and I have always wanted to see the gorillas, so I took the opportunity to come here to see the gorillas. I'm very curious about uh, how they uh, behave in the, in the bush. The more and more people that can come here and help do this, not just have the experience, but also to contribute to the local community and to, to, to preserve these wonderful, wonderful animals. It's just amazing. Almost brings tears to my eyes. <laughs> Within Windy, there are four families of gorillas that are visited by tourists once a day. This is possible because these wild gorillas have been habituated. This means they become tolerant to the presence of humans. To do this, wildlife rangers repeatedly visit a gorilla group, getting closer each time. This process can take up to two years until the animals are accustomed to the proximity of people on a daily basis. Habituation is not intended and has never been intended to transform the behavior of gorillas from being wild to being like tamed animals. Even when gorillas are habituated, they still keep wild. Habituation allows tourists to get close to wild gorillas, a key requirement for tourism. But these visits are regulated in order to protect the gorillas. Each visit is restricted to a group of no larger than eight tourists. We keep the groups of people visiting the habituated gorillas to a bare minimum to avoid stress because gorillas are social animals. They spend most of their time eating and grooming and they need their privacy, so to say. If we have too many people going to see group, these groups too often, then you begin to stress them and it begins to impact on their social behavior. I've been with the gorillas for so, so visitors must keep their distance from the gorillas and follow strict rules. The forest, eating, drinking and smoking are not allowed when we are nearby the gorillas. And when we are out there, we should not leave any rubbish. We must pack them and bring them here. Mm -hmm. The reason being, if you leave them there, some animals are suffering. They might come and start feeding on them, which can be too dangerous to them. Ecotourism is based on the simple economic principle that there is more money to be made from tourist dollars than from selling off the natural resources. Each visitor pays a 500 US dollar permit fee for one hour with the gorillas. We stopped timber companies or timber harvesting in Ibuindi and we earn a lot more money from the Great Apes tourism, from the Gola tourism, than we would ever earn from timber production. Each year, Uganda earns nearly six million US dollars from the sale of tourist permits alone. We respect the gorilla because of tourism. It's a bigger income to our country. But for the conservation of the forest to continue, it must also benefit the people immediately surrounding the park. The revenue sharing scheme puts a percentage of gorilla tourist fees directly into the development of the local communities. You know, there is some little money which normally comes in some parishes every year. We call it revenue sharing. It is the money 
which these whites normally contribute to visit this park to help the, 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 the citizens who are, live around the park. Local people also benefit from the extra trade and jobs created by tourism. This is particularly obvious in Bahoma, now the centre of tourist activities in Bwindi. This has been really quite successful. There's a lot of employment, there's a lot of small business opportunities that people can, can take advantage of. And, and particularly in those areas, people are very positive towards the park now because they see tangible benefits that they can get from it. I work as a supporter in Windy, and I have been doing this for seven years. I carry bags for tourists and I get some money which can help me and my family. So I buy food, I pay school fees, I'm trying to build a good house where I will be staying with my, my, my family. I'm almost finishing it. It has six rooms. I'm remaining with blustering, and maybe if God wishes, I'll put the electricity. Tourists also make direct contributions to development projects such as health centers and schools. The changes I can tell you, we had no any permanent building house. We had no any school around closure. But by now, you can see we are, we are just roofing with iron sheets. And education is totally changed because Children used to go far from here, schooling far from, from the village, but tourism has supported us. And by now, I can tell you, we have got a secondary school nearby here, being run by the community. Bahoma also has a well-equipped health center. 80% of its funding comes direct from tourist donations. Tourism has made this area richer, and there is a direct connection between economic wealth and health. Richer people, up to a point, are healthier people. And many of the diseases that we encounter in this area are diseases of poverty. In the last year, through spraying inside of all of the houses and by helping people to access mosquito nets at prices that they can afford, we've managed to almost eliminate malaria as a big problem within this area. You can't be complacent about a disease like malaria, but malaria has become a rare disease just within the last year rather than a common disease. But ecotourism has not only brought benefits to the people of the area. There are disturbing signs that the influx of tourists is creating problems here too. Negative that I see in this area around tourism is about the relationship that's been created between tourists and local people. And there are many people in this area that have learned how to really tug on the heartstrings of tourists. And um, what, it's, what, it, what it does is it's created a, a kind of dependency. The primary motive is to get money. There are sad stories, sometimes true and sometimes with bits of truth and bits of fiction um, that people have that they tell to tourists when they befriend them uh, in, with the real aim of trying to get money from tourists. Now, you know, I, I don't begrudge anybody trying to do that, but what it does is it makes people perceive the North Americans and Europeans as being superior and rich 
and it makes them inferior and you know, in some ways begging. They used to live their hard life in the forest before it was gazetted as a national park. Now they are happy because now they are eating on the fruits of tourism here in Bindi. Whenever you tell them to go back to the forest, they can't go back because now they are happy. Now they have a singing and dancing group for entertaining the visitors. came into this area for the first time people started getting exposed to dollars and their demand and interest for money increased. What did that imply? Uh, their social behavior started changing. It was not common to see video halls around here of people fighting which also taught people how to do crime. So people now have sophisticated means of stealing from tourists, from their neighbors, so it has also changed, impacted negatively on the livelihood of the people. Another negative of ecotourism is that it's had an unexpected harmful effect on the health of the people. Indirectly, tourism has contributed to the spread of HIV-AIDS here. In the past, there have been some security issues here. Um, there was an attack on some tourists here in 1999. And as a consequence of that, and because of the importance of this area to the Ugandan economy, there is a large presence of Ugandan soldiers here. And right where the soldiers are based, there's a burgeoning sex industry. What does that mean when lots of people are having sex? Well, if people are having unprotected sex, then it increases the chance of HIV. And so the, um, there's a direct correlation, a direct connection between the areas where soldiers are and people are having sex with soldiers, local people, um, and HIV. And of course, you know, the connection with tourism is that the soldiers are here in order to protect the tourists. So I see that as a def definite negative. Despite these problems, ecotourism is still perceived as overwhelmingly positive by many of the local people. Benefits of tourism have been concentrated around the Bohoma area, and therefore, the local people themselves are very vigilant and ready to defend the forest at all costs because of the benefits that they are seeing being derived from tourism activities in Bohoma. But outside Bohoma, are the benefits of ecotourism really enough to make up for the loss of the park's resources? You're talking about maybe helping people to move from being very poor to poor, but they're still poor. And so just because they may be able to cultivate more crops, raise some goats, doesn't mean to say that they still don't have great needs which could still be met by, by getting resources from the park. Poaching continues and snares are still found by rangers in the forest. Still there are those who are stubborn that they want bush meat because culturally they believe when their children don't eat bush meat, they fall sick. Or their ancestors, great great parents who passed away, will curse them if they don't go. 
and hunt, which was the activity of their ancestors. So, still, illegal activities continue. These snares are found in the same locality. We still have some incidences of poaching. The highest incidences of such illegal activities are found in areas that benefit the least from tourism. Communities that don't have tourism uh, around their, their areas really can see the difference and they, they envy them very much. Baremba is one of those communities. It's on the edge of the park, but far from the main tourist centers. It's a district of 3,000 people, but its two primary schools are rudimentary compared with Bahoma. The clinic is poorly funded, and there's very little external trade. Now, if we could have been those gorillas here, this town could be changed completely. But now we are suffering too, 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 too much. But we lack all those things. But are these inequalities and the harmful effects of tourism the price to be paid for rapid development and saving the mountain gorillas? Some conservationists argue that although imperfect, ecotourism has still been hugely successful here in Bwindi. We can begin to talk about a very positive trend in the conservation of uh, Bwindi and the gorillas specifically. In 2006, a census found a total of 340 gorillas in the park, an astonishing 12% increase in the population over the preceding decade. We have seen a steady rise in the gorilla population, and the habitat is still large enough to accommodate a few more gorilla families. It would appear that ecotourism has turned the tide from a gorilla population crashing into extinction to actual sustained growth. But recent research has raised questions about the sustainability of gorilla tourism. There are now growing concerns that it could further endanger the creatures it is claiming to protect. Habituation tends to, to domesticate to some extent the, the gorilla. So once they get used to the human beings, then human beings can also take advantages. Data suggests that the gorillas used for tourism are more vulnerable to poachers. The, the gorillas can no longer now distinguish whether this is a friendly force, whether it's not a friendly force. In incidences of poaching, we've lost eight gorillas in the, in the history since 1995, 2003, and we have had three infants taken into captivity. And they are all from habituated groups. It was hoped that habituation would merely allow people a closer look. 
but it has proven to have a profound effect on the guerrillas. Habituating all the groups to a certain extent affects behavior of the guerrillas. The ones which are habituated tend to feed less and move around more. And when they do this, then they may impact on the range of the groups that are not habituated. So the whole forest is kind of changed as a result of habituation. Added to this, the habituated guerrillas are watched every single day. These frequent visits appear to be stressing them to such an extent that they are reproducing less than normal. <coughs> we think there's a positive correlation in terms of the visitation and the stress factor. In fact, from the last census results, we noted that the population increase was largely from the wild groups, while the habituated ones had less and less infants. So guerrilla tourism comes with some very definite harms and some considerable risks. But there is another potentially greater problem, one that threatens the future of the guerrillas and therefore the continued development of the area. If they lose the guerrillas through disease, they've lost and a sustainable source of income for an area which is very, doesn't really have many other alternatives. It can take one month to wipe out a population and you may never rebuild it. Are humans getting too close for comfort? No, they are sad. <laughs> Gorillas are very susceptible to our diseases because we share 98.4% genetic material and so they can easily get very sick. You come, come behind, come this way. Let's keep the distance. If you have a bad cold or anything that's airborne, such as measles, then, and you get close enough to them, you know, at a distance of less than five meters, they can get diseases from us. And another way is through direct contact. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> you push you out of the way. <laughs> In 1996, I got a report that the gorillas were losing hair and developing white scaly skin. So we went out and uh, looked at the clinical signs. Dr. Kalema treated an entire group of habituated gorillas, all suffering from what was a suspected outbreak of scabies. But this was not enough. A week later, one of the infants died. The infant was crawling with mites, and the vets were able to compare those samples with the samples of the people around the area and were able to tell that the genetics are very similar and most likely the scabies came from people. If a gorilla licks a tourist's clothing, they will pick up you know, bacteria, viruses, or even parasites from the tourists. And that will be very detrimental because once that one gorilla gets it, they could easily spread it to the rest of the group. We have to keep a distance of seven meters, but sometimes I have some visitors who, whom I can say they are stubborn, 
you tell him to do this, he does this. I tried to convince that visitor to explain what, what he's doing, that it's not good. They said that we would be around seven metres away from them, but obviously if they approach you, then there's not much you can do about it. Did they say that in the briefing? What, what, what did they say about this close contact that sometimes can happen? Can you recall? No. I guess I missed that part, hey? <laughs> but I'm, but I'm, I'm kind of glad that I did, though. What did you think about how close they count? Yeah, actually, mixed. I mixed. feel mixed, yeah. Because it makes them more accustomed to humans, which makes them more vulnerable, which made me a little nervous. But I, honestly, I was a little, also a little jealous that they touched other people and didn't touch me. <laughs> but I knew I shouldn't be jealous, but I wasn't. Breaking the seven-meter rule seems not to be uncommon. I was in Brazil, and somebody came to me and said, oh, you're from Uganda? Oh, I, I came and saw your gorillas, and I touched them. I said, you touched them? How could that be? You're not supposed to have touched them, <laughs> you know? And then I have had it again here, uh, recently. So this is something that we definitely will have to address very seriously. I agree with you that it is a responsibility of all of us, the guides, the rangers, the staff on the ground, and the tourists, and the tour operators. It is something that we definitely will continue to try to stop. Currently, there are four guerrilla groups used for tourism in Bwindi. Each group can be visited by nearly 3,000 different people each year. But this will increase. There is pressure to sell more guerrilla permits either by enlarging visitor group size or habituating more guerrillas. <laughs> At the moment, there are so many tourists who have been looking for gorilla permits and they have not been able to get them because of the overbooking. For example, people have booked gorilla permits as far as three years to come. Even now, as I speak, there are people who always say, why don't you increase the number of habituated groups of gorillas? The greater income from tourism would mean more resources for protecting the park, but this would also put extra pressure on the gorillas themselves. The advantages of habituating are that there's more income for the park, there's more income for the communities, and all these other benefits, but they have to be weighed against the fact that these gorillas could end up you know, being so compromised and could end up dying as a result of too much human contact, and then they'll lose the resource forever. So it's a big balance between what is needed now and what is needed for the future. Uganda Wildlife Authority is currently habituating two more groups of gorillas for ecotourism in Bwindi.